Hello, David Oakes here, and welcome to another exciting episode of Trees A Crowd. If our last episode with Will Travers over at the Born Free Foundation explored the overlapping power of filmmaking and conservation, then this week's episode looks at the power of fine art and its resonance in the environmental realm. This week I'm talking to Georgina Lamb, the chief executive of her infamous grandfather's organisation, the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation. I offer you these two episodes side by side, mainly to showcase the good people who continue to fight for our planet's biodiversity in these very hard times, but also to emphasise the power of family as a driving force to keep conservation high on the agenda. When politicians rise and fall and political parties shift agendas, the power of a family or indeed a community perseveres. But without sounding too much like the final moments of a mid-90s US sitcom, I'll drop you straight into this week's episode. Enjoy the show. In the depth of the forest, an old oak root, the pride of the greenwood there. O'er his branches, the ivy her mantle threw when the forest boughs were bare. Oh, the oak and the ivy, oh, the oak and the ivy, oh. Hello, I'm David Oakes and welcome to Trees A Crowd. This is a podcast for those of you who, like me, think our natural world is incredible. Whether thrilled by skunk, chipmunk or an elephant's trunk, I get to talk with people dedicated to or inspired by our natural world. The David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation is a wildlife conservation charity funding key conservation projects across the world. They operate in China, Vietnam, Thailand, Russia, Mongolia, Kyrgyzstan, India, Guinea, Uganda, Zimbabwe, Zambia, South Africa and Namibia. But I've come to exotic Shortford, just outside of Guildford, to speak to their current chief executive, Georgina Lamb. Georgina is the granddaughter of David Shepherd, and if the Foundation's website is to be believed, she has been unofficially working for the Foundation since the age of 10, perhaps the only instance of child labour of which I approve. Georgina, hello and welcome to Trees of Crowd. Thank you for having me, David. This is great. Um, you say that now, you might change your mind. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so well, let's start with your grandfather. I mean, this is a family trust, so your mother was the previous chief executive you're not the current chief executive like yes so we have had some gaps in between but it was very much established by my grandfather as a a huge passion project of his he felt he owed a debt of his success to wildlife so he absolutely wanted to set up a foundation to raise awareness and to channel funds to organizations that he fundamentally believed in and wasn't too huge that there was so much bureaucratic red tape and he could be flexible and adaptable enough to react to wildlife and wildlife crime poaching instances across the places that he loved and you know due to the the wildlife that he painted so he set it up 35 years ago Mm -hmm. and it was very much run by my mother Melanie for over 25 years and then we've had a couple of other fantastic chief executives in the meantime and I recently took over in April. But you were working for the company before that? Yes, so I was uh, heading up our programmes and policy work, which is a huge passion of mine. I love as much as doesn't sound like most people do policy in terms of wildlife. I think somebody's got (laughs) exactly someone has to do it. Um, But actually, the programmatic work as well. You know, I've been very lucky to have visited a lot of the countries as a as a kid growing up and seeing the people who we work with and. Our ethos is very much working with trusted partners on the ground and knowing exactly where our funding is going and knowing the impact it's having. So for me, it's I feel just as passionate as, as Grandad did and, mm-hmm. and as Mum did um, all those years ago. So it's a huge privilege for me to now be in this position. So I was born in 1983, I think. And for the first 18 years of my life, I had a David Shepherd on my bedroom wall. 
<laughs> that is a very familiar story that we are lucky enough to hear from so many people. And it's why, you know, we are a relatively small organisation, but we have a such... A massive footprint. Yeah. An elephantine <laughs> footprint. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, we do always say we like to think that we punch above our weight, but it's because of the dedication of our supporters. The amount of people who follow our work or support us or are interested in what we do have genuinely been have known the work of Grandad, whether it was through a painting or whether mm. he turned up at school, you know, the amount of people that call and say, I remember as a kid, he came in and did a talk around, you know, who's the most, what's the most dangerous species on the planet? And people sure. would shout out, you know, crocodile or whatever it was. And he always said it was man. Yeah, I'm, I'm people there remember that. in the front row going, it's humankind. <laughs> exactly, as we all are. But, um, <laughs> but you know, it, it, it's so nice for us because there's still such a legacy and mm. that you know, the, that piece and the history of what we're built on is still absolutely at the forefront of what we do today. There's something iconic about his painting style as well, that even if you think you don't know who David Shepherd is, even if you don't think you yes. know what a David Shepherd <laughs> painting is, yeah. as soon as you see one, you'll go, oh, it's that guy, yeah. it's the hazy yeah. sort of African... Yeah. Uh, the, yeah, it's the painting yeah. that was on uh, Only Fools and Horses in the living room. We get, we get that a lot as well. <laughs> I didn't know that. Uh, yeah, it's in the backdrop of, uh, of all their main scenes. <laughs> One I mean, of these iconic elephant paintings. What better way than a bit of free advertising? <laughs> exactly. Of BBC. Um, so yeah. So what were your earliest memories of David? I mean, people called him the man who loved giants, which is such yeah, a lovely term. It was, and um, that so summed him up. He was. I mean, as a kid growing up, obviously not only as my grandfather, but as just an absolute hero in the wildlife space. It was just his unabound passion and enthusiasm. If you took him anywhere, where, whether, you know, the man who loved giants, whether it was steam trains or whether it was elephants or anything big and exciting, he turned into a kid in a toy shop. It hmm. absolutely, I've never seen just such beautiful excitement and passion shine through from someone who just adored and cared so passionately about the wildlife and also the people who fought to protect it. You mentioned steam trains quietly there. I found a quote that said that he apparently said, you can always build another steam locomotive, but you can't build another tiger. Yes. But it's that wonderful dichotomy of going, I just love big. <laughs> Absolutely. I think actually he also used the same quote where he said, you can, you, you can always build another Taj Mahal, but you can, you can never build another tiger. And that was what he believed in. He said, you know, our abuse and exploitation of the natural world is, is something that we have to remedy and rectify. And he was... He never minced his words, he was never scared to stand up and absolutely passionately say, this is wrong, this is what we're doing, and I don't care who doesn't like it, you know, he was he was not always the most diplomatic and PC person, but he got people motivated and he, he forced change and through art, it was a wonderful way for him to be able to have difficult conversations through a beautiful medium, mm -hmm. um, which I think sometimes means you can broach topics that you wouldn't otherwise talk about um, through a much gentler entry point, which is more comfortable for a lot of people um, when we're talking about some quite hard-hitting issues, whether it is you know, poaching or, or the exploitation of the natural world. It's exactly why most introductions to this podcast have a terrible pun in it. Um, yours got skunk, chipmunk and elephant's trunk. They've, they've been far, far worse. I mean, that's not a, that's I just feel a quite lucky. Um, do you know what it was that got him excited in the first place? I mean, the internet just says that he wanted to go and be a, a ranger in Africa. Yes, so... But where does that even come from? <laughs> so he had this burning passion that he was destined to be a wildlife ranger. I think he, he headed off to Kenya to start with, booked a one-way ticket, turned up on the warden's door and said, here I am. And they said, well great but we don't need you You're, you have zero skill set it's you know not something that we're looking at at the moment so um he was in africa trying to you know 
make some money to fly home eventually and he spent a lot of time out with the military there and was commissioned originally to do a lot of military paintings, so aircraft. And so he was already in his 20s, I guess. Yeah. yeah, and so the military slightly got a bit bored of, you know, the same old commissions of aircraft sitting on a runway. So his mm-hmm. first wildlife painting was a rhino on a runway with military background when the uh, British Army were doing an operation in, in Kenya. But when he was out there, he over, he saw a waterhole that had been poisoned by battery acid mm-hmm. and 250 zebra were killed outright as a result. And he said that was the defining moment where he realised he had to do something about it. And at the time, he wasn't at the height of his career, but he knew that he was absolutely going to dedicate his life and use his work as a way of creating change and forcing change. And he succeeded. Yeah, absolutely. So that's how he got fascinated. What was your battery acid poison zebra drinking hole? I'm not sure I've had anything as, as, you know, luckily, I suppose, nothing as, as traumatic, but growing up, I almost became slightly normalised, as awful as it sounds, with poaching and what was going on. With with Mum as the CEO, we were exposed to a lot of the horrors of the poaching spikes and the and what was going on in Africa. You know, decimating mm-hmm. wildlife um, for the ivory trade or for the rhino horn trade. And I think it's just always been something that's been in the back of my mind, knowing it was wrong and having a total love for the natural world and just wanting to be outdoors and never sitting at a deck so I took a bit of a kind of convoluted route to get there but it was definitely because of their passion and just I think therefore it was part of our DNA just to know what was right and wrong sure. when it come when it came to wildlife and conservation. So did you grow up around here? Or? Absolutely so grew up um, born and bred in Surrey and have been here you know most of the time I've spent a bit of time living in, in Zambia um, on and off for about a year okay. um, just about a year and a half and I loved and adored it there. And Zambia was, people always said, Zambia was granddad's second home. So it's somewhere that's very special to all of us. But it's the most incredible country. And I think, you know, I'm very lucky and privileged to have been able to have seen firsthand a lot of the work that happens on the ground. But it changes your life. You know, you meet these people who are willing to do the most extreme and difficult jobs in some of the harshest environments and landscapes in the world. And they do it with the most beautiful, biggest smile on their face and they see it as a privilege. And why would I want to sit in an office at a desk in a high-rise building in London if we can help support those people and, and what happens? We are in an office at a desk, though. Yeah, so. it is, but at least we know, you know, vicariously we can live through a lot of the project work <laughs> who are on the ground. Sadly, that's the kind of world of conservation. I think everyone has yeah. this romantic view that you always, you know, you're out being a ranger or you're out, you know, in Africa. And actually, they wouldn't be able to do what they did if we weren't here sat oh, at the yeah. desk. I mean, we do have a nice view, not quite in this room, of a duck pond looking out over the cricket pitch. <laughs> it's not, it's not, it could be worse. <laughs> Have you ever worked out on anti-poaching patrols? Have you been out and ranged with rangers? Um, I've spent quite a lot of time out on foot with the rangers. We never, all the projects we work with are very um, sensitive to the fact that if it was a high-risk patrol, um, they don't take any type of external, even if you're, you know, have a donor relationship or if you're part of the organisation, just because there's a, you know, there's a lot of security issues and sensitivities. Mm -hmm. But in terms of just standard anti-poaching patrols, walking out, seeing the locations, seeing all the the um, law enforcement camps and sites, absolutely. Um, and it is incredible. These guys walk for hours and hours and hours a day with very little. And that's a big thing for us, you know, having seen the standard that they're used to working with and, you know, boots that sometimes don't match or lack of equipment. Well, there was a new partnership I saw that you started with a a young sock company who were raising funds to get rangers' socks and boots and rucksacks and stuff, practical 
things. Yeah, the Sockstar Project. It's this incredible young guy called Lewis Bedford, who is just one of the world's wonderful kind of activists for why we all need to be better. And he set up this project very much around the importance of welfare. I think we, for rangers, we can get very excited by new modern technology and drones and all these fancy um, solutions to poaching. But actually, if you're expected to go out and be on patrol for endless, countless days in a row and you don't have socks or you don't have basic rations, Mm -hmm. you know, all the technology in the world isn't going to help you. You have to work on that welfare and that morale piece. And that's something that we as an organisation absolutely stand by. And sometimes makes it harder because you're not always necessarily raising funds for the the sexiest or most attractive of projects. But actually, it's exactly what keeps these operational... And these projects operational and, and the rangers able to do their jobs. So you mentioned these projects. Let's look at more of what the the Shepherd Foundation does. I, I think it's is it fourteen projects you're partnered with at the moment. Yes, it, it fluctuates um, uh, rarely, but at the it's, uh, it's normally around that number. But you've um, got like a, there's a chimpanzee project in West Africa. You've got an Assam based yeah. anti poaching. There's, so, there's a whole list of snow leopards, rhinos, yeah. painted dogs. <laughs> It sounds kind of quite sporadic when you talk about that, but we have eight core species that we work with and we very much take a holistic view to conservation. So we believe in education is key. We believe that community and people are key and obviously the law enforcement and fighting wildlife crime. Those are our three pillars as such. And we very much look at trying to tackle the the wildlife crime circle. So what we call it is source transit demand. So operating in source countries where... The poaching is happening on the ground, um, looking at transit companies, so funding organisations and investigations into the trafficking routes, which normally look from Africa to Asia. And then the final piece, which is the destination, the consumer market. So working with organisations and supporting projects that are looking at reducing demand um, for consumer the consumption of, of wildlife products. So we very much take that view that you have to be operating at all three parts of that cycle mm-hmm. if you want to be able to tackle and ultimately end wildlife crime and, and the illegal wildlife trade. And then the, the other part of that is we look from kind of grassroots to world stage. So we're very much believing that if you're just, for example, working on the ground, you're just stemming the bleeding. You also have to be looking at policy change and working with governments to try and do that. So we do take quite a holistic approach, um, but all of our projects are very much based on our core eight endangered species um, across Africa and Asia. Which are? Which are, oh, I've got to count them now. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, If I can't get this right, it wouldn't be great. Um, (laughs) It's um, elephants, rhinos, tigers, lions, painted dogs, snow leopards pangolins and chimpanzees. Great, that's eight. Well done. You can Down remain as the chief executive <laughs> of the day, whichever part I get a gold star. Um, I think I read somewhere that you were particularly key in getting pangolins sort of added to that. Yeah, right? so we... As I said, you know, we are a relatively small organisation and one thing we never wanted to do was overstretch our commitments. We very much believe in long-term support for these projects. As much mm-hmm. as we talk about long-term sustainability and, you know, you have to invest in these projects over a prolonged period of time. You can't just inject a series of cash over a year and yeah. then walk away. So There's a million quid saved. Yeah, and then, you know, and then and have no long-term or ongoing relationship. It doesn't really work like that. So we very rarely do take on new projects or new species, but a number of years ago, before pangolins were, well, catapulted into the, the world's eye in light of COVID and, and what's been going on more recently, mm-hmm. we recognised that there were some major issues around 
um, the illegal wildlife trade with pangolin being the you know almost the I mean I've got them as the largest topic. mammalian trafficked species yeah alive. so it's the most trafficked mammal in the world um, I think they estimate around 300 a day are illegally trafficked uh -huh. and the problem is is there aren't enough population studies to understand what the global population looks like therefore the impact of that other than they know that for example in China um, they've been commercially overexploited and are therefore extinct um, there are a number all eight species are protected to the highest level in international trade but they are absolutely endangered and most people still if you say what a pangolin is a lot of people don't know what that is mm. so we were very much key in the early days about saying this is a species that we want to try and preempt extinction and therefore we have to get involved very early on in supporting projects that are looking to one reduce demand um, and there are some amazing organizations who've been working on this like wild aid for years and also projects who are on the ground looking at rehabilitation and the, and the rescue of pangolins and looking at ensuring that local communities understand the implications of pangolin trafficking and, and sure. what that looks like so yeah dswf have been have been instrumental from a uk charity point of view in terms of making sure that we have a very robust and, and full pangolin project that you know, hopefully will look to turn the tide and extinction of the species, although it is a very uphill battle sure. for pangolin. So before we look into sort of more about international trade and CITES and poaching alike, could you like try and sort of, I know this is going to be a very hard question to answer because every single project operates differently, but what kind of ways do these individual projects, how do they operate on the floor? What are they, what is the day to day of the reality mm -hmm. of using the support that David Shepherd is giving them? Um, so it's it does vary. Our, like I said, our primary purpose is to fight wildlife crime. So a lot of it is funding anti-poaching or anti-trafficking patrols on the ground. So mm -hmm. that would be supporting ranger teams or special anti-poaching units, for example, in Zambia, to look at targeted anti-trafficking um, investigations and, and intelligence-led operations to try and prevent poaching or where poaching has occurred, make sure that those criminal syndicates at a localised level have been dismantled mm. and wildlife crime is reduced. I mean, because I think the one thing that people think about poaching is they go, when I've got some stats here, they go, well, one elephant is killed by poachers every 15 minutes, mm. 300 pangolins every day. They, they forget to sort of make that link into realising that these rangers are actually putting their lives on the line. There is a certain amount yeah. of human loss of life that goes oh. alongside the... Absolutely. Animals. I mean, it's one of the most dangerous jobs um, and the statistics around how many rangers are killed is, is, is terrifying and it's, it's only getting worse. And I think what we don't anticipate or, or always understand when we talk about those statistics in isolation is the fact that, you know, this is a human problem, but humans are the solution. But, you know, humans therefore have to be at the front line. And mm -hmm. as we, we describe it, you know, they really are fighting on the front line in the war against wildlife crime. They're going up against, not in all cases, a lot of it's localised poaching, but in some cases where they are going up against organised criminal gangs, they are sophisticated entities and they're well funded, they're well armed and they really are putting their lives on the line and a lot of these eight you know government um, rangers because most of the time we're working very much in partnership with the government wildlife departments um, and they are employed by the government they some of them have done six months training and they fired five bullets and that's it so they're going out expected to be that first line of defense with very little unless there is that that support from organizations like ourselves and our, our ground-based conservation partners sure um, and then just jumping back, and the mm. other the other side. So, for example, there are there are different parts to it. So, projects, for example, in Kyrgyzstan and, and Mongolia, which is with the Snow Leopard Trust, who are a fantastic organisation. That's very much around. You know, poaching is less 
of a main issue um, just because of the remote nature of it and mm. of the, the, the species in terms of snow leopards. That's very much around ensuring that habitat isn't encroached upon, that mining licenses, for example, are revoked and you know they're not taking up pristine population land. And also it's around research and understanding the population densities, the movement, the interaction, and working with communities to make sure that retaliation killing doesn't happen so if you're a herder in a remote village in Mongolia and you happen to have predation of a one of your prized sheep that's a huge economic loss for yeah. you so working with them on microfinancing schemes and in terms of um, protecting and predator proof corrals that will make a huge difference so you're looking at that positive engagement with communities to make sure that they are inclined to protect the snow leopard rather than see it as a threat to threats. their own livelihoods. absolutely yeah there was I was reading the other day about um, some elephants in Botswana, there were something like 365 carcasses that no one was quite sure why they arrived. Now Botswana obviously has had hunting prohibited there for quite mm-hmm. some time, so there's a substantial population, mm-hmm. comparatively speaking, of, of elephants in it. So one of the fears was that it was communities worried about their livelihoods being affected yeah. by elephants mm-hmm. trampling yeah. fences, goats, chickens, yeah. whatever. And the, I mean, the, the human wildlife conflict piece is, is a huge piece, you know, with human populations growing at the rate that they are and with wildless, wild spaces and wilderness spaces shrinking, you have to be addressing those conflict points and those stress points because communities at the end of the day have to have a positive benefit to living side by side with wildlife alive mm-hmm. and there has to be a greater benefit to keeping the wildlife alive than it is as a as a dead product as such. How do you do that? I mean I mean we'll get onto community stuff literally mm. next but like how like wild animals are wild animals yeah. we are civilized tame social humans who do not work in that environment how can you other than just sort of saying keep your distance respect it like mm. how can you make them enjoy the so there's a we work with a, an organization in Zimbabwe called Painted Dog Conservation who are a fantastic example of this and so what they do is there's very much a sense of positive engagement with the communities so they know that for example a health clinic or a maternal health unit for mm-hmm. um, you know pregnant women where there's you know a, quite a significant and serious risk to loss of life when they're giving birth that has been built on the basis of income as a result of the painted dogs in the area. And as so, in through tourism? Or? So through tourism, through organisations um, and charities who support painted dog conservation in the area, they will absolutely say, whilst it's not money going directly to the conservation of dogs, what it is doing is it's absolutely creating a positive reinforcement with the communities to say, you know, we will look at greater kind of, you know, helping education or health in the area on the base, but there it is absolutely on the basis if the dogs go, then, then the support goes as well. Sure. Um, and there's a there's a wonderful bush camp that is run there, which has been going for many, many years. And it's very much around bringing kids from very, you know, economically deprived villages in the local area to come and have an immersive four-day stay at this very remote rural bush camp but it's the first time for example some of them have even slept in a bed they've seen a light switch they're given three hot meals a day they're given incredible immersive classes around the wilderness and the painted dogs and the importance of painted dogs on the ecosystem and therefore how it will benefit their long-term livelihood whether that's through you know micro agriculture schemes or farming schemes Mm -hmm. and making that um positive association with the fact that the dog's are the reason that that is all happening. And they've seen a wonderful turn now, you know, having run this for over 20 years, in the fact that a lot of kids who went through that class, like we were saying with Grandad in the early days of kids still remember him going into schools, a Mm -hmm. lot of those kids now are coming back and saying, 
that changed my life. It gave me a far better, greater an understanding of the educational importance around environmental issues. And they're now wanting to either work for PDC, um, becoming rangers or working in the bush camps or working on those community projects. So you have to be looking at the livelihood and the income aspects of conservation community. You you can't separate people from wildlife. Um, and there's a wonderful, there's a fantastic um, elephant biologist called Dr. Keith Lindsay, who we work very closely with on CITES issues. And he very much talks around, rather than human-wildlife conflict, it's, it's human-elephant coexistence. And sure. I think it's just trying to change that narrative, even the fact that when you talk about conflict, there's a negative connotation. So communities are already naturally thinking, well, it's a conflict, rather than the fact that there actually can be you know, huge benefits to this coexistence and, and it is something that they're very used to but you have to just try and change that mindset from a negative connotation to, yeah. to positive engagement. I mean, communities make money from poaching as well. I mean, yeah. it, it's the thing, it's about saying yeah. you can make more money, your hospitals will be better supported as a result of a, a kinder, more collaborative yeah. relationship with yeah. rhinos and elephants. And some, I think some of the most, most successful rangers that, um, and anti-poaching units that we've seen in Zambia, they actually take ex-poachers who like you said you know you can make a huge amount of money from working in a poaching syndicate but it's dangerous it causes issues with the family you know and there's it's not a regular income stream some of them have now converted into anti-poaching rangers one they know the area they know how they operate but they've suddenly been given a regular income stream and so their lives have changed in a better way and they're far more informed as to the local landscape and how that looks so there's definitely a huge benefit to to working with people who have been in that industry and you can't just shun them and say well you you know you were an infamous elephant poacher once and actually we'll use that skill set give them a give them the opportunity and they absolutely become become your best rangers yeah um you mentioned cites what is cites cites is the convention on international trade in endangered species um which is a intergovernment sorry an international agreement between governments so it regulates the trade in endangered species so it this is, has existed since the 70s yes yeah. um, absolutely and countries are party or members to CITES and what normally happens is there's a series of meetings that happen either yearly or every um, every couple of years and it looks at the impacts of trade on species so there's a huge array that is covered everything from um, you know plants are also covered so you know rosewood for example where there's huge issues but the main species that we work on at CITES which are the more controversial ones which always take up the most time mm-hmm. um, on the on the floor in debates are around ivory elephants and rhino horn for example with rhinos so there is a huge divide between those countries who believe you should trade in a species to preserve it and those sure. who believe that trade is causing the extinction of a species. Mark was telling me about narwhal tusks and how there is a an allowed number of narwhal yeah. tusks that are allowed to be sold mostly to indigenous tribes mm-hmm. and trafficked in it as a result but then there's an illegal uh, trade in trying to take them out of the country because yeah. narwhal tusks are a subjectively beautiful objects that people mm-hmm. might want to possess as are elephant tusk mm-hmm. objects and the like and it's it's interesting to yeah. believe in the same way that people are allowing big game hunting mm-hmm. it's like we allow a certain amount we license it and yeah. hopefully we can use that funding to help conservation efforts yeah. do you believe these things are necessary personally um, as an organisation we are an anti-trade organisation so our full stop yeah so our belief um, especially at the moment when you're talking about an endangered species there's a finite number clearly mm-hmm. otherwise it wouldn't be classified as endangered so why you would try and 
encourage a trade when something, for example, elephants, ivory, the elephant has to be killed to remove the ivory. It's not a product that will naturally regrow. It takes a huge amount of time. And, the, and by putting a commercial value on ivory, you're stimulating demand. So there's been a number of one-off sales and experiments, um, for example, around trying to flood markets in Asia with ivory to say, well, that should, in theory, drive down, um, the, cost. Drive down the cost. and therefore, Drive down the demand. Absolutely. But what we saw was that there was an... Or, what happened was there was an absolute growth and a spike in you created new buying markets because suddenly it became more affordable to people and so the impacts of poaching overnight in Africa as a result of those one-off sales were huge and we saw elephant populations absolutely decimated across Africa so we very much believe that also where there is an illegal where there is an sorry a legal market absolutely there'll be an illegal market market. I mean you see those photos of massive amounts of seized Mm -hmm. ivory being burnt yeah. People go, what a waste. I mean, you might yeah. as well use it whilst it's there, yeah. but that in itself. Yeah, and again, so stockpiles is something that comes up on CITES that we work on and, and the management of stockpiles and, and therefore their disposal or destruction. And again, it's that concept that if, if you're keeping ivory or you're storing it, one, there's an issue with, and we've seen multiple cases of this where there have been leakages or there's been break-ins to storage facilities and it's crept into the black market. And secondly, there's then that expectation that at some point we will be able to sell ivory, therefore we are keeping a commercial value on a product where mm. we are outpricing the value of a, of a live elephant by saying it is worth X amount and therefore by burning it you are absolutely taking away any type of commercial incentive or reliance on a product. Sure. Um, but it is, you know, it is difficult and the problem is, and again it's not... Re- topic that everyone's overly comfortable talking about but we're just talking about about corruption (laughs) you know when you're talking about a product a high value product you know a lot of these wildlife products are worth more than gold and cocaine on the black market for example Uh you absolutely white gold don't they yeah yeah but you know you're working in countries where there is a huge lack of funding and resource for correct security measures and therefore if you're looking at sitting on a an ivory stockpile worth millions there are huge temptations to sell it to abuse that process and therefore it's not you know where where you have a legal and illegal market it is not a straightforward black and white law enforcement you know mm-hmm. case so if it's illegal it's black and white it's very much easier than when you come across someone who's got ivory or you're trying to trade it at the moment there's a huge amount of um, ambiguity around the fact that in some species you can trade some species you can't so it just creates a huge amount of gray space which when we're talking about populations declining and elephants or pangolins or rhinos who are on a fast track to extinction, why you'd be considering trade in these species is something that we don't necessarily, well, we don't agree with. Sure. Am I right in thinking that the David Shepherd Foundation was instrumental in getting all ivory trade banned in 2016 through societies? That's one of its greatest, most recent successes. Yeah, absolutely. And there's, you know, a number of, we're very much big into collaboration. There's a number of organisations who worked absolutely with us on this. So Dave Shepard Wildlife have worked quite closely with a incredible coalition of African elephant range states called the African Elephant Coalition, who represent the majority of African elephant range states where elephants are, you know, naturally home to. Mm -hmm. And it was very much... um, a belief of these countries, and I think it, their coalition numbers, I think it's 30 to 30, you know, between around 30, 30 African states who absolutely said we need to close domestic ivory markets and no international trade because our elephant populations cannot recover. Yes, you do have isolated populations, for example, as you were saying, in Botswana or South Africa where there are large numbers, 
but you can't look at elephants in a geographical state view. You know, they yeah. are migratory species and you have to look at a continental population. And where there are declines or where there are unsustainable poaching levels, domestic ivory markets were perpetuating the belief that ivory was a commodity that should be sold. And it goes against endless and decades worth of demand reduction saying ivory is not a value that you need. It's purely just human greed. You do not yeah. need ivory. It is it's a luxury product. We've sort of we've successfully made at a genetic level identical rhino horns, yes. uh, synthetic rhino horn, yeah. which technically therefore would do everything that ground down rhino horn in your Chinese medicine would do. Yeah. But people don't want it. Yes. It's the they want the luxury of yeah. grinding down a real yeah. bit of a rhino. Yeah. They don't want the genetically yeah. and similar. And it's the same with tiger farms. There was the concept that by creating tiger farms, you could use the products of bred captive bred tigers mm -hmm. rather than wild tigers the problem is is that because it is a luxury item which has a high value people still want the best case which is a wild caught mm. rhino horn or it's, it's it's not a synthetic product and you're still then stimulating demand because you're still then creating this belief that rhino horn has medicinal properties it's keratin it's the same as eating your own fingernails your yeah. own hair so the problem with those synthetic alternatives is that you're stimulating demand, you're creating that view that it still is a product, and it just goes against the international view and narrative that this is something that, you know, this yeah. is an acceptable practice. If anything, it just stops those with less money from getting the real rhino yeah, horn, whereas absolutely. those with money yeah. can still So the wild populations are still even more at risk because mm. they become a premium. Um, moving away from that, um, one of the things that I particularly like about the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation is that it definitely holds onto the roots of your grandfather in terms of art as mm. a way to express the good work that it's doing. Other than having to enter the offices through a kitchen <laughs> warehouse, you do see art on every wall. There's some rhinos over there, they're both shepherds. A shepherd, yeah. and there's a Bengal tiger behind me, that's not one of his. But there's art everywhere. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely a key part of what we do almost as much as, as conservation and wildlife art it can absolutely be the platform to celebrate which again goes back to that positive messaging mm -hmm. um, the beautiful aspect of the natural world everyone I, can't, I don't know a person who isn't moved by seeing a beautiful painting or a beautiful photograph of a beautiful landscape with an elephant or you know whatever it may be whatever your, your personal interest is but it is absolutely a tool for enforcing change and we use it um, not only for raising awareness and a lot of artists especially wildlife artists are some of the most passionate individuals and advocates for the natural world mm. because it's their inspiration and you know we take inspiration from the natural world and everything we do and yet it very rarely gets the recognition it needs but it's also for us from a very practical point of view it's a great fundraising tool not everyone wants to necessarily just give 10 pounds to to save elephants because sure. they deeply care but actually you can they'll not care about the environment yeah. but they'll happily buy a beautiful piece of artwork for their new house so it's a wonderful way of raising uh, money as well for the projects that we work with and you know, we have all of our artwork sits under a banner called, you know, a program or portfolio called Art of Survival. And it is very much that. It not only helps raise awareness, it helps have conversations. You know, not everyone who wants to sit and read a 20-page document or an article about something, but they will happily look at, you know, a beautiful painting which says exactly what you need it to do. And actually, there's definitely a, a surge and a rise in more controversial wildlife art. We run a, a Wildlife Artist of the Year competition every year. And we really recently in the last couple of years introduced a, a human impact category and before it was always very much 
we'd end up with you know a thousand entries of beautiful elephant portraits mm-hmm. or tiger portraits but the human impact category is around the fact that yes they're less likely to sell because they're much more graphic and yeah. quite intense in their detail but it's a wonderful way of being able to visually portray some of the messages that we need to talk about whether it's pollution whether it's plastic whether it's you know coaching sure. um i didn't know you were doing that that's fantastic mm. the so photographer award did that as well they sort of went into the mm. more sort of darker side of yeah. it because it was just yeah. pretty birds and it does you know some people walk around obviously this year was a bit unusual because we had to move the whole thing online but mm-hmm. normally you know you do see people walk around the gallery and they're having this wonderful experience looking at some of the most incredible world-class wildlife art that you can see and then suddenly they'll come across a piece that makes them go, oh, hang on, I find that quite uncomfortable. So what won that category most recently? Um, So most recently it was a wonderful piece um, by a lovely young artist, because it's, Human Impact is also, um, it's for younger, so I think it's 17 to 24. Uh Don't quote me on that. Um, And it was a lovely artist called Scarlett Henderson, who is still at school, um, studying, and it was a beautiful piece that she did with pointillism, so the whole thing was made of dots, and it was this incredible, it was at the time when Australian wildfires were obviously Mm -hmm. ravaging the continent and the country and um, it was this I think it was called No Smoke Without Fire and it was this birds flying through this smoke Um, so it was actually a beautiful piece but then the piece before last year won it was shark fins that had been done in a beautiful very kind of design pattern but they still had the kind of blood dripping off them because of the industry around shark finning in in Asia. Was it a conscious decision to make it a youth prize because they're a, you want to get them in, involved in that yeah. element of it, but also they do so seem to be more it, actively involved yeah, than adults. It definitely was a conscious um, decision, but we do get a lot of our artists who don't fit into that age category saying, I wish I could enter because actually <laughs> I'd love to be able to use my art as a you know, as a messaging tool. Sure. But it was definitely, we wanted to engage the youth, we wanted to, you know, some of the most outspoken and brave people, because I think you haven't got slightly stuck into being conscious, are you oh, know, I'm the Greta syndrome. Now. I was, yeah, I was absolutely. out there as a teenager. Yeah, you're so much freer, and I think a lot of the older generation, um, when it comes to art, or you know, I I'm in that generation too. If you're looking at the kind of the, the young category, is um, it's very much a, a lot of these people are very well established artists. So mm-hmm. going from it's quite difficult for them to go from very traditional, well known paintings and portraiture that they are known for and they use as a commercial way of you know their own income sure. to then suddenly doing something so controversial that is a little bit uncomfortable. Whereas the younger people and youth are so much braver. They sure. just have no because they've got nothing to lose. Yeah, absolutely. And um, do you paint? Um, I don't paint. My sister is a very well-known artist and is very involved in the foundation, and my aunt is also. It's very much, it is still, as, you know, the conservation side with my mother and me, we've still got the art side in terms of the legacy and the heritage coming through. Sure. Um, but it's it's lovely to see that, you know, we have more wildlife artists than ever before approaching us saying they want to do projects or they want to get involved. I uh, My artwork would probably not be, uh, be be celebrated if it was on the Wouldn't art, be on, one of these on the walls. walls. No, absolutely not. Um that's all wonderful and positive. I'm just going to ask one absolutely disgusting negative question, potentially. I think it's, it's fair to, to see at the moment that at the moment countries are relating less well to each other. The trade wars are starting between America and China. There's, this morning Britain was having a go about extradition treaties and all this kind of stuff. It's, it's getting pretty scary. Do you, do you feel the burden, therefore, is being placed upon charities, foundations, organisations like yours to fill the gap that should be being taken by nation states? Yeah, I think um, if you'd asked me that at the beginning of the year before COVID, I would say the beginning I, of the week. Well, the beginning of the week, yeah. Well, <laughs> this morning, um, no, um, I would have said absolutely, even more so. Um, but I think there is definitely a switch that we're seeing where industries and businesses 
they they can no longer ignore mm. the environmental aspect of and the impact of, of what their business and industry is contributing to. I definitely think it is a slightly going to a scary space where people are less. We've even seen it in the in the policy world with CITES. Countries are less inclined to want to follow international agreements, and they go, "Well, we'll just pull out if we don't get to sell our ivory or our rhino horn. Mm-hmm. We will just, you know, we'll find a buying partner, and if the two of us pull out, then we'll just have our own individual yeah, agreement." So, yeah, and so it it is very scary, and I think there is a huge amount of pressure and. There is only what our biggest concern over COVID, especially, has been that you, we're going to undo conservation efforts overnight yeah. because funding's being pulled, and quite rightly, people are obviously having to look very much at their own focus. So charities are going to really struggle. Therefore, we'll be in a less position, you know, less strong position to carry on doing what we are doing. Therefore, we need governments, we need businesses to step up. You know, a lot of these businesses who have interests in the countries that we're working in, for example, yes, they're doing limited good work. But they have far more political and economic clout than a charity who normally is banging on the, you know, the, the relevant doors getting turned away. If you're a big business owner or a big CEO who's investing heavily in a company, mm-hmm. your ability to influence policy is far greater. And actually, they need to be looking into that. So, yeah, there is a major concern over <laughs> what the future is going to look like. But as charities and, you know, if it was granddad here, you just don't give up. Sure. Not, giving up is not an option. So. so if people wanted to help the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation and the many projects that you partner with, what should they do? Um, obviously, I mean, the best way for us is, is donations, which is via our website, davidshepherd.org. But there's a million ways people can, can get involved, whether that's through community fundraising, whether that's through art, whether that's through attending events. And a lot of that is on our website or on our social media platforms and channels. So it'd be wonderful if people are interested to to follow our work and, and continue listening to what we're doing and, and how we're trying to turn the tide on extinction. Super. There are three questions I ask everyone who comes on the podcast. One of them is really irrelevant, <laughs> but two of them are interesting, so we'll, we'll give it a go. Um, first question, if you could go for a walk anywhere in the world right now, where would it be? It would be in Kafui National Park in Zambia. Why? Because it is one of the most raw, untapped, beautiful, spiritual, wonderful places where there is so much opportunity there. It's been under-resourced, but you know that it... The moment someone breathes life into it, it is one of just nature's... They call it the lungs of Africa. It is, it's just incredible. Is it big animals? Is it just trees? Is it Actually, it's sadly, because of poaching, it's not... Oh, you don't see as much wildlife as other places in Africa. It's very mm. much more desolate. But it's just... There's just a sense there of, of just something about to bud, like a little, a little flower coming up that's just about to break the surface. You just know that there is so much life there that you can't almost see, which I think, for me, I would much rather almost go on a walk or be somewhere where you know there's wildlife, but they're not choosing to let you see. But you, So you, it puts, I think, us back in our place a little bit, rather than just seeing it kind of teeming around. And we very much, I very much feel like I'm an observer and a guest there, mm. rather than humans who always have the opposite view, I think. The way it should be. Yeah, absolutely. We visit places rather than places should be lucky enough yeah. to have us visit them. Yeah. Um, second question, should we colonise the moon? Oh, interesting. Um, no. <laughs> I think we've done such a bad job of our own planet. I feel nervous as to what that would look like for somewhere else. Okay. That, I, I was expecting you to say pretty much word for word. It's that. absolutely, let's just move so, on that. So, the second, so I want to get rid of that question because sometimes it brings out very fun. Sometimes it's just, <laughs> it was back in the day when I was 
really a bit of, too obsessed with space. Um, <laughs> so this is so what I want to replace it with, and I've been slowly doing it for mm. this show, is changing it to Who's Your Natural History Hero? Now, I'm, I don't know where this... This could go one of two ways, one of which is fairly obvious. <laughs> so actually, I, I, most people, I think, would expect me to say my grandfather. Mm-hmm. If I could say my grandfather and my mum together then it would be those. But actually, if I had to pick someone, there is a, there's a gentleman called Sport Beatty who set up Game Rangers International, who's their CEO, who is one of the most dedicated, hardworking, driven, focused people in the conservation space that I've come across in a long time. And he's working out on he's the He's working in Zambia, okay. yeah, on the ground, day in, day out for the last 15 years there specifically, um, living in a tent, just dedicating his life to to the wildlife and conservation of Zambia. Is he mad? Yes, but the best people are. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Third question, final question. Um, if you could bring any species back from mm. extinction, which would it be? Probably the dinosaur, because then it would put humans in their place. Which one? The a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> it's the only one I can think of. <laughs> no, maybe something like, no. Uh, well, yeah, if it was to do with putting people in their place, then probably, but um, no. If I could bring a species back from extinction, that's a hard one. It probably would be... I'll have to get back to you on that, but I'm going to go with dinosaur for now. Um, General. Have a think about it, record yeah. it on your iPhone, send it over, I will. or tag it on okay. your the first person who's, who's either said something and then later in the day, <laughs> I should have said no. <laughs> one of the things I've been fascinated... This is, we'll finish. Congratulations, you finished the podcast. <laughs> um, thank you very much for... I hope that was, um, no, was okay and you kind of got what you ordered. It's, it's absolutely never perfect. Never done a podcast before, so... Um, and you may never do one again. <laughs> Um, Thanks, God. <laughs> I've always sort of been fascinated by like the precursors to elephants and all those yeah. kind of things. And you, like, I think children watch them in Ice Age yeah. in the film, and you see the sort of the yeah. giant rhinos with the bizarre Woody, horns, yeah, the woolly mammoth, and those type of ones. And, um, yeah. Mastodon. Like you just yeah. kind of, I, I want to fill the world with mega fauna yeah. after the dinosaurs. I always remember a teacher once told me about, and I don't know if it's real. She, I thought she was just probably having a weird day, but she told us about these frogs, and I can't remember what era it was that were the size of cars. And I was just like, well, toad-type creatures. And mm. I was just like, I've ever had this image when I'm like stuck on the M25 of just like these giant toads. And I'm just like, yeah. But I mean, you know, with the woolly mammoth and stuff, you know, the fact that they're being dug up from the permafrost to take the ivory, I mean, it just shows the extent of our human greed and obsession with a product. Rare things. Yeah. I didn't know that we were using fossilised mammoths yeah, for their Yeah, people ivory. are digging it up. And so there's a big, the CITES there just, um, it came up last year, Israel put a paper in, um, around trying to get more and better trade um, regulations around mammoth ivory. That's insane. Hmm. People are digging it up because it's so high value and they can palm it off as uh, ivory. But shouldn't it be more rare because it's mammoth ivory? Right? Yeah. Is there anything else that's equally as mad? And Some of the things, I mean, and we don't work on a lot of the kind of more obscure species, but you do sit through these meetings and I, I always feel bad at societies because elephants and rhinos take up such a big part of the debate. And sure. we sit next to a lovely lady because they always sit south. Bethany, one side we've got Safari Club International, which is not so great. You just want to shoot and kill everything. And then on the other side, we've got this lady who sits, you know, sometimes we're there for three weeks and she'll sit through the entire meeting. I think she works on something like glass frogs or a mm-hmm. very specific species. And they sometimes don't even get, they'll go, right, is this proposal got any problem? No, fine, done. And, you know, you kind of, I do feel some of the lesser known species, whether it's some of the marine species as well, you know, especially around where there's big kind of fishing industries and the impact yeah. on, you know, like, like the Totoaba and things like that. There's, um, they're just, they're, why someone would trade in, the, the kind of rationale yeah. and logic I really struggle to understand is you see some of these things and you're like, one, why would you ever want to eat that? 
or you know use it as a product but two they're so obscure and yet they are just traded to the point where they are now appendix one species and they are on the verge of extinction yeah, you know, we're debating there's one species that we debate um i mean turtle blankets to do with the um Totoaba, it's the, it's the porpoise, it's the tiny porpoise that because of the Totoaba fishing. The Vaquita. The Vaquita. Yeah. And we're debating, talking about regulation of trade in Vaquita. There's something like 12 left. Yeah, and I'm like, nice. we're sitting in a conference debating this and we're not going to come up with a decision for another three years. By which time they're probably... And there's 12 yeah. in the wild. I'm like, the speed of change, that is the one of the biggest frustrations at these meetings, is just demoralising sometimes. If you could add a ninth animal that David Shepard Wildlife Foundation would look after, what would it be? Um... If it was me personally, probably mm-hmm. something like vultures. Okay. Yeah, which are very endangered, but we obviously don't wouldn't do birds. We we're, we're mammals. Um, the knock-on effect of getting rid of a vulture population mm. is really problematic as well. There was. Yeah. Uh, I think they were being culled in India, and yeah. then that meant that yeah. there was a, a rise in carcasses yeah. and then a rise in flies and yeah. disease. And there's spreading. loads of anthrax poisoning in Africa where the problem is is then you get your carrion and you're you know they just spread it so then you see these mass you know kind of extermination because a poacher hasn't been bothered to set snares they've just put anthrax in the water holes and of course they then just carry it around and vultures have been hugely hit by that because they then feast on all the dead animals but they've got some of the most incredible adaptations i just think they're fascinating creatures and they are very vulnerable and endangered a lot of them and people don't tend to like them that much because they're slightly funky looking i spoke to a malacologist so a mollusk specialist who wow. resented people's obsession with what she called disco species. Ah, uh, okay. Um, which you can understand yeah. as a malacologist. <laughs> but um, but yeah, also everything so. everything is interconnected. In the, oh. I always love it when someone uses yeah. the phrase holistic because yeah. everything is so yeah. interconnected. It's, yeah. it's, if you save one thing, you translate it and save another. We've, um, it's, it's so true. The, the ecological impact, like when people talk about, you know, keystone species and cornerstone species it's it's huge if you remove one of the major or smaller species the impact on the whole you know the biodiversity is is huge i mean it's you know it's, you can't just take one thing away whether it's a mollusk or you know whatever it is whether it's an elephant but they just happen to get more press time because they are bigger and people want to look at a picture really of an elephant i'm not sure if you had a painting of a <laughs> Of, of some, of, of some yeah. kind of clam. Yeah, but I'm not sure it would, it would have quite the same Well, effect, I think sadly. you should enter the uh, Malacologist <laughs> of, uh, Painter Award of Absolutely, the year. Absolutely, and see what we get. <laughs> Wonderful, that really is the end of the podcast. Thank you very Perfect. much, Georgina, much appreciated. Thank you very much. If you'd like to know more about Georgina and the work of the David Shepherd Wildlife Foundation, please head along to davidshepherd.org or indeed along to treesacrowd.fm where you will find links to everything Georgina and I discussed on this week's show. We're back again in a fortnight with one final look at animal conservation, but from a wholly different perspective. But until then, thank you very much indeed for listening. Goodbye for now. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh, the oak and the ivy. Oh.